This is a Federal News Network podcast. The Postal Service, like nearly every federal entity, has strict limits on how much executives can get paid. There are a few exceptions, though. Each year, the Postal Office of Inspector General does an audit to make sure the agency stays in compliance. Here with this year's findings, the Deputy Assistant Inspector General for Finance and Pricing, Alan McMullen. Mr. McMullen, good to have you on. Thanks. It's great to be here. And this report is annual by statute, or you just like to make sure you're on top of it? Well, we just like to make sure that the Postal Service is is on top of compensation to its executives. So this is actually a discretionary job, which we self-initiate, generally speaking, annually. But that can vary any given year based on certain priorities of our office. Has that ever been an issue in the past where there's a bunch of people making way too much money? We have identified some issues previously in the past, um, but not so much as as post service employees making too much money, but some errors in some of the reporting that is required by the Postal Service to Congress on those limits. Okay, so then tell us precisely what you were looking at in this current version then. Sure, yeah. So there are two main sort of limits for executive compensation. The First being the executive the executive schedule one. And so this is the system of salaries given to the highest ranked appointed government officials at the executive branch of the U.S. So that totals to about for calendar year 2021, this was about two hundred and twenty one thousand dollars. So think of your cabinet level officials here, your secretary of Tre- Treasury, secretary of defense, those those individuals are capped at two at approximately $221,000. In addition, there's a bonus exception. So these executives cannot exceed the salary of the vice president of the United States. So looking back at calendar year 2021, again, that was about $256,000. Now, also, the Postal Service is a little different. Um, they do have they are provided a critical position exception. So this gives them up to 12 officers or employees in critical senior executive positions. They may be paid a total annual compensation up to 120% of the vice president of the United States. So for calendar year 2021, this was about $307,000. That would be, for example, if they had to hire someone from UPS or FedEx with logistics experience and who might be making a whole lot of money that would at least give them some incentive to do public service, basically. Exactly. This allows them to be more competitive in in the market to that almost of the private sector. And so what did you find? Are they generally in compliance and are they in compliance with the salaries and also the reporting that's required? Yes. Yeah, so we did not find any issues this year regarding compensation. The Post Service complied with all applicable maximum compensation laws. We only identified some reporting issues uh, during during the year. So the Postal Service is required to report to Congress on any employees receiving compensation in excess of those limits. Um, it's included in their annual comprehensive statement of postal operations. This is their annual report to Congress. So compensation information required to be in that statement uh, was in, in a couple cases um, incomplete and inaccurate. You had about 10 people from the roster of executives there that did not report. Were these substantial variances or what was the issue with those 10 people? 
I would not call them substantial variances. The total, if you kind of put it all together, was was just over like $30,000 for bonuses that was excluded. And this is covering for all of those employees. And then about 10000 in their excess earnings uh, that were reported there. This occurred primarily because the Postal Service did not include payroll adjustment data in that reported compensation information. And there was also a few clerical errors and typos as part of the reporting process that we found. We are speaking with Alan McMullen. He's Deputy Assistant Inspector General for Finance and Pricing at the U.S. Postal Service. So I'm sniffing out a couple of possible recommendations here then, more on the administrative front than that they're paying people a million dollars. Yeah. So, I mean, basically we recommended that their financial reporting team coordinate better with their payroll team to ensure any adjustments are incorporating. And so they've committed to establishing new reports that include those payroll adjustments so that they have that information come reporting time. We also asked them to, to basically look back at the process and see what they can do to prevent clerical errors and typos. They And there they also agreed and committed to adding in some quality check reviews to the process, and they're updating their standard operating procedures accordingly. And who has the discretion to do the bonuses to go higher if need be for the critical position exceptions and that kind of thing? Does that all go up to the postmaster general or do one of the governing bodies that seem to it, surround the postal service have a say? It, Yes, no, it's 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 actually the the Postal Service Board of Governors that will approve those those bonuses for these these key employees. All right. So then what else do we need to know about this? I mean the it's interesting that the salaries are similar to those in the executive branch because every time you talk to a postal executive the first thing they say is we're not a federal agency, but they really are. I mean you guys really are, aren't you? They they do operate with very comparable to uh, the federal government. And like you said, there's only a couple of exceptions that they are provided uh, to try to retain and recruit various executives in key positions that's a little more competitive with the private sector. And while we have you, there's a couple of annual financial reports coming from Postal Service to Congress in the next couple of months. What should we be watching for when those issued? Yeah, sure. So the Postal Service in in November will be issuing its 10K, and this is a comprehensive report of its financial performance for the year. So this will have more detailed uh, compensation information included, along with other information about its financial performance and, and operations. In addition, Postal Service will be issuing its as the as mentioned annual report to Congress in December for calendar year and fiscal year 2022. And from what we can discern, some of the changes made statutorily and operationally under Louis DeJoy, the balance sheet looks like it's not being gutted out so much for Postal Service. Looks like the basic finances are improving. Is that too early to predict that, or do you think that's what's happening? Well, I think we will see in the 10K that the Postal Service is in a different fiscal situation than it than it has been previously. So definitely look forward to reviewing the financial information when it's released and audited in November. All right. and uh, But you can't buy stock anyway, and uh, no matter what the footnotes say. But I also wanted to ask you one quick question on your job. You have pricing in your title. What does the IG look at with respect to pricing, given that everything is a fixed statutory Board of Governors approved price that the Postal Service charges? So, yeah. So actually, the, the Postal Service uh, has been provided some more authority on its, its price, uh, on its pricing for its products. 
but those are regulated by the Postal Regulatory Commission. So whenever any price changes take place, the Postal Service must submit information to the Postal Regulatory Commission, who provides advisory opinions on it. We, as, as the Cost and Pricing Directorate, we review various information that is provided to the PRC, effectively so uh, we can provide some assurance that the information that Postal Service is providing to the re- regulatory body can be relied upon. All right. Well, we'll watch out for those price increases and ask you whether they're making a good justification. <laughs> Alan McMullen is Deputy Assistant Inspector General for Finance and Pricing at the U.S. Postal Service. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. I appreciate it. Good to be here. And we'll post this interview along with a link to that latest report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your shows. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you, and then and, and how did what does that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA, and he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took pr- um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's it's catching when when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? It's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. <laughs> sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there. Um, I didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say 
there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say, I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with, who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. He thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, Um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour. And you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish I wish and it was it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader too is to solve near-term problems. I always say it's sort of deliver short and then you can push them long, right? So we we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those you know sort of blue sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve. Um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in this in this sense. Looking back, what what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? 
And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that back seat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so, well, sometimes you have to tone it down. Sometimes you have to tone it up. And that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. It's, I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school. And I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down on the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. 
Reconnect with a carpool or van pool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply. Whether it's Baker's Simple Truth Turkey or Mac and Cheese with Murray's English Cheddar or pie made with fresh Cosmic Crisp apples, there are many dishes we look forward to sharing during the holidays. And Baker's has all the fresh ingredients you need to turn today's holidays into tomorrow's memories. Baker's, fresh for everyone. Get more ways to save at the Buy 5 or More Save $1 each sale. Just buy 5 or more participating items and save a dollar each with card. Baker's, fresh for everyone.